everybody. Welcome to School Psych Podcast. Uh, I'm Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Maryland. Hope you guys caught us a little bit on earlier. We were on Facebook Live talking about the coronavirus and kind of the impact on school psychologists and how all of us are holding up. So hopefully that conversation will continue. You can check out that that feed and all the great comments that we saw as well. But um, we're going to shift gears a little bit and we're talking about learning disabilities. So that's, that's a big topic for us and we're super excited. Um, when I first... Uh, so last NASP, I talked to Dr. Farmer and we had just seen um, Dr. Mackey had done a presentation and um, I said, do you think she would come on the podcast to him? And he, and he was like, yeah. And I was like, you know, well, how, tell me a little bit about her. And he just kind of thought for a second and he's like, she's a, she's a badass. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, she definitely needs to come on the podcast now. I just love that kind of intro to her. So not to be like, not, you know, I'm not in the most, a little bit of a goofball and whatnot, but but, but just uh, I, that got me like super excited to meet her and to um, learn from her. So we need more more badasses in the field. So. <laughs> but anyways, I'm going to turn it over to Rebecca, who's going to tell us how we're how you guys are participating tonight. Rebecca, hi everybody. I'm hoping that you are watching us live and therefore can comment right alongside uh, the video. If you're logged into your YouTube account, um, you should come right up and we can share your comments with Dr. Mackey and also even um, post them on the screen, which is really helpful for the conversation and discussion. So please feel free to do that. If you are listening, um, not li listening audio only, or you're uh, watching later, not live, please still feel free to comment. We, we like to continue these discussions over time and we uh, often go back. I, I listen to podcasts almost every morning and I often listen to school psych podcasts to older episodes. So um, you can comment on um, on the Facebook pages, School Psych, Your School Psychologist, or the School Psych podcast page, our dedicated page for the podcast, or on Twitter, we have um, at Podcast Psyched is our Twitter handle, um, and you'll also see Eric, Rachel, and I on Twitter with our own um, uh, Twitter feeds as well. If you use the hashtag Psyched Podcast, we will find your comments, probably retweet it, and we'll be able to continue the discussion. So we're looking forward to hearing from you, and I'll be looking for notifications. And now I'm going to hand it off to Eric. Okay. Thanks, Rebecca. Uh, my name is Eric, and I am a school psychologist also in the state of Connecticut. And I think right now school psychology is in the state of confusion as we're dealing with uh, viruses and school closings and all of these things. So um, I'm excited to listen to Dr. Mackey and talk with her this evening. All three of us are excited to have her here. Um, I got to listen to one of her presentations at NASP and had to leave uh, before it was finished. So I was disappointed that I didn't get to say hello afterwards and and just enjoy the rest of the content of the presentation. So I'm glad she's here tonight. Um, but I'm gonna give you a little biographical information and then we will start the conversation off with uh, Dr. Katie. So Dr. Katie Mackey is an assistant professor in school psychology uh, in the school psychology program at the University of Florida. She earned her PhD in school psychology from the University of Minnesota in 2016 and her master's in special education from Vanderbilt University. She was a special education teacher in the Nashville public schools prior to attending uh, school psychology graduate program. And her research centers on the examination of academic interventions and database decision-making within multi-tiered systems of support and the identification of specific learning disabilities. Katie is particularly interested in conceptual measurement and practical implementation 
issues related to SLD identification procedures and how such issues impact identification decision-making. The goal of her academic intervention and SLD identification work is to ensure that all students receive appropriate academic support in schools. She's also currently the associate editor of Assessment for Effective Intervention. So lots of things that we could talk to you about, Katie. And one of the things that I'm most interested in is uh, measurement and database decision makings. And uh, just as we were chit-chatting prior to going live, um, some of the things that we are influenced by when we make these decision makings are not always data. And, and so I'm curious, I guess, what are some thoughts that you have um, about database decision-making for SLD specifically, um, and some of the inclusive and exclusionary factors that we have to bring data to, but often become anecdotal, if you know what I mean, um, you know, uh, attendance and English language as a second learner, and some of those things that influence our decision, but aren't always um, brought uh, brought to the table with data, I guess would be my my first thought but what do you what do you think about those exclusionary and ex and inclusionary factors as we make decisions sure uh, well first I thanks for having me I'm really excited to chat with you guys tonight um you know I think the exclusionary criteria are um, they're problematic in terms of measuring them or how we make decisions about saying this is not a specific learning disability or the reason that the kid is not making progress or is not achieving where we want them to be is because of these other issues. We don't have good ways of measuring those. I think one of the things that you just mentioned um, related to uh, ensuring a kid's received adequate instruction, what's one thing we tend to look at? Have they actually been in school, right? But how do we actually show that they've received adequate instruction in terms of um, ensuring that, particularly in RTI states, but I would argue in all states, um, that the kid has received specifically targeted interventions to that kid's specific area of difficulty before uh, saying that this kid has a specific learning disabilities. I think that is a huge uh, part of the decision-making or part of the process that we should be thinking about. Um, and I don't know that we do a great job of with that. Um, and I don't say that lightly. I just think that it's a really hard thing to do. We work in schools with um, our colleagues who we like. And if we don't think a kid's been getting adequate instruction, how do you have that conversation, I think, is one challenge that we face. Um, I think another thing to think about is just ensuring that we're using appropriate assessments to make sure that we know what the right intervention is that a kid might need or what the specific area is that a kid might need. So I think that's a huge issue. Um, you also mentioned language, another really hard thing to think about. Um, how do we toss out or, you know, kind of parse out if it's a language issue, which is why a kid's having academic difficulties or if it's a um, actual specific learning disability, it can be both, right? But how we decide whether it's one or the other is really, really challenging. And I wish I could just give you like one answer. I don't have it, unfortunately. Um, but I think thinking through how we collect, and I think this is something we might wanna talk about more, but thinking about functional assessment data so that we can use meaningful data to try to make those decisions in the best way possible. But I do think that there's, um, 
I don't think we have one thing that's going to give us the answer for any of those issues, unfortunately. When you talked about, you know, adequate instruction, it kind of made me laugh in my head a little bit because when we, so at my schools, we project the paperwork, you know, for everybody to see and they go through and they check each box and they say, and we're going to check, you know, that they had adequate instruction or appropriate instruction. And that just means, and they explain to the parent that they were taught by a certified teacher, like end of story, like they were taught by a certified teacher, therefore they have had appropriate instruction. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Um, so that's, I mean, that's something that I could never be like, well, I, like you said, it's awkward. Um, you know, how do, how do you delve into that? It's. Yeah, it's really hard. And I think, I mean, my, um, I guess my, I, I don't mean to, my, my message is not that teachers aren't doing a good job teaching. I think most teachers are doing a really, really good job teaching, but I also think that there are you know, there are challenges associated with teaching and ensuring that we're meeting the kids who are really struggling, I think, is a different story in terms of thinking about adequate instruction than just regular adequate instruction in the classroom. So, yeah. And like you said, it's not we're not saying the teacher necessarily, yeah. but sometimes we have curriculum issues with tier mm -hmm. one. You know, the teacher is teaching the curriculum as they should be, as they're taught to. Um, but maybe it's not an appropriate. Yeah. Thing. <laughs> it's really hard. I didn't think about that. I mean, Florida's an RTI only state. Connecticut's an RTI only yes. state, right? Yeah. So um, specifically for RTI only states and thinking about most states don't, at least in the regulations, don't have real specific criteria for measuring lack of response. You know, some departments of education put out additional information and guidelines for some of that. But um you know, a lot of the state regulations just say what IDEA says that the kid did not make adequate, uh, did not make adequate progress in response to intervention. And so what that means for me might mean something different to somebody else. And so how we make those decisions about whether or not it's a learning disability, I think is, is really, really complicated. Yeah, That's a good point. And, and I think it, it speaks to some of those confusing conversations that we have on social media in particular with other practitioners. What do you think of these test scores or what should I do with this kid? And um, it's a complicated process. And, and I think that seeing those, that, that kind of frustration with practitioners or quandary with practitioners is um, just speaks to the, the concern. Um, one of the things, we talked about a little um, when we were emailing is the landscape of current practices. So, um, you know, I think we, we will have a, a group of listeners from across the country in various states. So um, perhaps talking about a little bit about methodology and conceptualizing SLD um, might speak to practitioners from PSW states and yeah. discrepancy model and yeah, so there's a lot of variability. Um, but Nick Benson had an article that came out. Uh, well, it just the I think the paper version came out in School Psych, previously School Psych Quarterly, just a few days ago. But um, as part of a survey looking at uh, what school psychologists are doing to identify students with learning disabilities, and it's really variable. Um, a lot of people are using patterns of strengths and weaknesses. I can't remember what the exact numbers are, but it's 
like 30, 40% or something like that. And then RTI is around 30, 40%, and then fewer reported using discrepancy approaches. So it's really, really variable. Um, I think there are like nine RTI only states, but then of course you have districts that are using RTI on top of those um, RTI only states. Um, but I think the biggest wave that we're seeing is an increasing use of pattern of strengths and weaknesses approaches across the country. Mm. Do you have a sense of what um, a clinical psychologists who are um, going for private practice, how they're, how, is how they're taught to identify, um, I mean, I know they have different, they're looking for diagnosis and not qualification, but um, are they taught differently in terms of looking at uh, assessments? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, I do know that the DSM-5 added a point about having to, for a specific uh, learning disorder, that you have to ensure that the kid has had adequate instruction, um, which is interesting in that different type of setting that that's part of it. So that's assuming that they you know, get information from the school in some format. So they are supposed to get that information. How they use that to make decisions, I don't really know. Um, I would think it would be harder to use that information to make a decision in the same way that we would in the school setting. Um, but I would bet that based on the DSM that they're looking maybe not at a specific PSW approach, but more looking for those specific psychological processes in conjunction with academic difficulties. I get a lot of outside reports too, and it often, because it's not the same criteria as what we would use and we're needing an impact and need for specialized instruction. And it gets very confusing for parents, I think, when sometimes they kind of slap the report down and like, told you so, you know, dyslexia or, or whatever. And we have to say, okay, you know, but this is our criteria over here. This is how we do things in this district. And it's, it's confusing and I understand how it's confusing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so confusing for parents and I, not at the fall of the parents. You know, if you get this report from an outside, you know, a clinical psychologist or whoever it might be, and they say the kid has dyslexia or specific learning disorder, and then they put recommendations that say the kid should get an IEP or a 504, then as the school, when you have to say, well, we can't just do that because we have our own state and federal regulations under which we're working, um, that's a really hard conversation with parents. And I understand why parents get frustrated and upset when you don't just say, okay, because you legally can't just say, okay, but they don't necessarily, they don't know that, so. For sure. We had a good question that I'm gonna put up over here. Um, what do you think about students that are identified with learning disabilities across the board? So reading, writing, and uh, reading, math, and writing. And how do you think uh, we should address these students? I guess getting to the specific learning disability component, is that a requirement or what does that look like? I mean, legally, it's not a requirement. I mean, the, the term is a specific learning disability, but there's nothing in the regulations that say it can only be in one area. Um, we get referrals, you know, I'm sure you guys do that are uh, a referral for a potential learning disability and they want reading, writing and math information because the student is struggling across the board. Um, I don't know that it's that uncommon. I guess I have mixed feelings about it. Conceptually, I think it's kind of problematic because it is a 
supposed to be a specific learning disability. Um, practically speaking, implementation-wise, I don't know that I care as much um, because I want to get meaningful information on what I think will best support the kid. So I think I think about it in two different ways: conceptually problematic, but practical implementation. I don't know that I care as much. Um, so how do you think we should address these students? I would do the same thing that I would do with any sort of evaluation was, would be to get uh, meaningful assessment information to plan, well, one, to meet the legal requirements in my state and the guidelines in my district, and then two, to gather meaningful information to plan intervention for that, that kid and to make an eligibility decision, so. Mm -hmm. That's good. And, and what do you what do you think of when you know when when the um, qualification is good? You know, it feels like they've been through the um, RTI process, and there's been some testing that suggests yes, this child you know really um, learns differently, say in reading. How do you think? Where are we in terms of? Um, being able to provide a uh, differentiated instruction for specific learning disabilities in, let's say, in reading? Well, I think that there's pretty decent evidence to suggest that the type of reading intervention that would work for a kid who's identified with a specific learning disability in reading would be similar to a kid who didn't meet eligibility criteria and is still struggling with reading. Um, I don't know if you guys have been following the science of reading debate that's been going on. Um, and some of that work that Emily Hanford has been doing is pretty interesting, I think, and helpful for pushing that conversation forward. But thinking through, um, you know, eligibility has important ramifications in terms of service provision and um, uh, legal protections. Um, but as far as reading instruction goes, reading in particular, I don't know that we're, I would argue we probably shouldn't be doing anything that's that different than other kids who need that like explicit phonics or fluency um, instruction, whatever it might be. That's uh, to me that in itself is so fascinating because um, I, I think parents are hopeful that, that, you know, once they understand, oh, this is the problem, my child has dyslexia, uh, they think that there can be, you know, uh, something very specific that, oh, we know exactly how to um, support that. And and maybe, you know, having more one-on-one -on -one, um, attention from the adults and smaller, you know, a smaller class um, pull-out support or stuff of some kind. Is that um, sort of special thing that, that makes, uh, that helps? But, but it's so frustrating that it's not that special. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think that that's, for me, that's even even bigger question about how we provide services in schools in terms of general education, potentially tiered interventions, and then special education. Um, what is it that we're differentiating if it is not that much or if there, um, I, I just think maybe there are different ways we could think about how we provide services to kids that need extra support and um, having that yes, no decision uh, for special education or not eligible for special education, I think is is problematic for how we actually should be arguably providing services to kids or, base, or what kids actually need. Yeah. That's a good point. And that's often how we 
address assessment, right? We expect the, uh, let's say a VASC, a WISC and a VMI or whatever is going to give us a yes or no answer. Um, and in actuality, you know, the, the variability, the variance accounted for in terms of achievement is pretty low um, when compared to those assessments. So um, we had talked about um, the considerable the considerable variability. What does that mean when we're looking at an SLD assessment? Um, so what are, what are your thoughts regarding some of that? In terms of what we should be doing or what? Yeah. I would say, yeah. <laughs> That's a good um, question, I guess, right? What we're doing questionably and how we can improve it. <laughs> yeah, so I guess I would say um, <laughs> we got into the big question. Maybe thought maybe you'd save this for the end of the- Oh, we could wait. <laughs> um, you know, I, I want to just have an answer for what I think we should be doing. I mean, I have some thoughts on general practices I think that we should be doing, but as far as an identification method goes, I'll be frank in that, um, well, I think PSW is extremely problematic psychometrically. Um, discrepancy approach is problematic psychometrically. RTI is also problematic psychometrically. Um, I tend to default to RTI because I think that in theory, and I think in theory should be in italics and capitalized maybe that in theory, it should be providing um, evidence-based intervention and instruction that should help kids along the way. And so knowing that kids should be getting that support is important, but um, I'll also say, I don't think RTI is identifying how we've historically conceptualized a specific learning disability. Um, IDEA and all the states define a specific learning disability as a disorder in a basic psychological process. And I think with RTI, we're not, I mean, you can gather additional information, but just based on rate of growth and achievement, we're not looking at that psychological processing deficit. Um, I also kind of don't really care if we're not measuring what the definition of IDEA is or of SLD is in IDEA. Um, but there are huge issues with RTI too. I mean, for those of you that don't work in RTI only states, I'm sure that you're seeing challenges with implementation and systemic implementation is really, really hard to do with fidelity. And it's hard to get interventions implemented with fidelity. And um, there are issues with progress monitoring data. How many data points do we need in order to be able to make a reliable decision? That's a huge issue. Um, and so I think there are issues with all three common approaches, unfortunately, um, which is also why I just kind of wonder the utility of SLD from practical, a, a practical standpoint. Um, conceptually, I find it very fascinating for all of these reasons that we're talking about. But I think it's one thing for me to sit in my office and think about this from a conceptual standpoint, and then for folks to have to go out and practically implement these things, I think is a whole different story. And, and more importantly, has huge ramifications for kids and what their educational traje trajectory looks like. So did I answer the question? Yeah, I think that's good. And it's interesting because just as we started talking about that, several questions came up saying, you know, what are thoughts about utility of cognitive assessment um, for SLD? There it is. 
And then uh, another one, Barry's question, I think, was what are your feelings about RTI um, in tandem with PSW approaches? So, um, yeah, um, I don't find um, a cognitive assessment to be useful for SLD identification. Um, I think if you have questions about um, a potential cognitive disability, then that could be a reason to um, use a cognitive assessment. Um, I also think sometimes we have, but sometimes you don't even need, you kind of have, you know, your own thoughts about that. But yeah, I don't find it useful. I definitely don't find it useful for intervention planning. Um, you, even though SLD is defined as a basic psychological processing disorder, um, really its hallmark is that it results in academic achievement mm -hmm. And if the result is academic achievement deficits, then we should be intervening directly with those academic achievement difficulties. And, um, you know, there's been no research really to support that training psychological processes results in benefit to academic skills. There's some research to support you can train, you know, working memory, things like that, but it really hasn't translated over into improvements in academic skills. So if I if we're thinking about in schools, we have a finite amount of time each day, right? I mean, I'm at the school, it's like a six hour school day. It's insanely short to me. And so to fit in, you know, kids that need core reading instruction, core math instruction, reading intervention, maybe math intervention, that's their day right there, right? And hopefully we feed them and they get to run around for a few minutes and at the elementary level. And so, I just think if we're thinking about how we maximize our use of time in schools, that we really need to think about doing what there's some, an evidence base for. I'm not saying there will never be research to support some of those things, but there's not now. And so because of that, I really think we need to think about practical implementation based on what there is some support for. We know a lot about reading intervention. I mean, another issue with SLD is that we don't know a lot about other <laughs> the other areas of SLD. We know some about math. We know maybe a little bit about writing. Um, and SLD and oral expression, I don't, I don't know, talk to your SLP, right? Um, but, you know, so I think there are issues there. Um, and then I think the other question was RTI with PSW. I would, I guess, just default back to what I said earlier about psychometric issues with PSW. So I think combining it with RTI, I mean, you have the benefit of implementing those interventions up front that will hopefully be beneficial to the kid, but um, you're still using then a method at the end that um, is unfortunately just does not have psychometric support at this time or evidence to support its use, especially for a high stakes decision. Yeah, LD is always kind of a depressing topic yeah. <laughs> because we, we've had a lot of people on to talk about it. And yeah, the, the responses are, you know, nobody nobody has the answer, of course. So. I know, I feel like the last like few years at NASP, I've done these presentations and I just like start with a um, like Surgeon's General warning at the top of um, I, I hope you didn't come here for like one clean answer on what we should be doing because I I don't have it. Um, I don't think anyone has it. And I think if someone says they have one clean answer on what we should be doing, then I would um, encourage you to question that. 
um, just because I don't, we just don't have evidence to su um, support some of the things that are happening. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you mentioned the science of reading, and I've been following that a bit on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. And we've had Dr. Kilpatrick on, and um, he's been the one that people are rally around. <laughs> but um, I see a lot of you know parents. Um, and teachers kind of getting into it, not as much school psychologists, but I think more and more. What are your thoughts on that whole, that movement? And you mentioned Emily Hanford and her work. Yeah, I think it's great because it's kind of in the, um, you know, it's becoming more of a um, topic in the general society, which is great. Um, you know, the fact that Emily Hanford has been doing so much of this work and it's um, on podcasts and she's writing these articles that is, are not in, academic journals that are behind the paywall, I think is so important. Um, as academics, we put out this work. Well, one, we do the work and then we put it out and then we have to pay to get access to it. And so does everyone else. Um, and so that's a huge issue. And so her putting it out for anybody to access in a way that anyone um, can understand, I think is super important. I think the other thing that's been really beneficial is that um, I think it's made people in higher ed think about what we've been doing. I don't fault the teachers for not um, not teaching in a way that is in line with the science of reading. I fault higher ed institutions that have not prepared teachers um, to have that knowledge and those skills to be able to go in and implement explicit phonics and other reading instruction. Um, and so I think it's been really, really beneficial. And I and I'm hopeful that we're seeing seeing a swing um, in things. Like you said, I'm seeing on Twitter different people that I follow or, you know, that are retweeting things and a lot of um, principals and superintendents that are having these conversations. And so I'm hopeful about that. Good. Awesome. I know we want to get to and I want to hug. I, I have to hold myself back because I have <laughs> questions and I don't want to hog but and I know we want to get to functional kind of more functional assessment and focus on skills and, and maybe a discussion on that but I know that so I follow ResearchGate which I think is great because it sends out emails when you know people that you're following it's kind of like the, the nerdy Facebook of mm -hmm. research and whatnot so when something gets posted and I know um, I was looking over um, one that you put out recently with a bunch of other people that we know of too so how do school psychologists interpret intelligence tests for the identification of specific learning disabilities. And I shared out that link um, for our viewers to kind of check on. Do you want to give us kind of a drive-by of, of some of that before we get into the other stuff? Or Yeah, sure. So um, John Cranzler is the first um, author on that paper. He's a colleague of mine here at Florida. Um, and he and a few other folks, Nick Benson, Randy Floyd, Tanya Eckert, um, and Sarah Pfeffer did this big um, survey of school psychs, largely assessment practices. And as part of that, they were looking at SLD as well. Um, and so as what this paper came out of that big project that they did. And um, so we we're looking at how folks use intelligence tests with SLD. And so I think to me, one of the big takeaways is that um, IQ tests, cognitive assessments are still administered fairly frequently, even when um, folks are using RTI to identify SLD, which I thought was really an interesting finding because conceptually um, measurement of IQ doesn't align with RTI methods for SLD identification. But to me, that would suggest that a couple of things that one, it could be a rule out of a cognitive disability. Um, two, it could also be that there's something there that 
um, people find meaningful in terms of assessing for SLD, even when they're using RTI to make decisions. Um, I guess in line with that, I'll say that I'm working on a paper now that um, we're resubmitting to a journal and um, we had data from state, uh, some districts that used RTI and they there were a lot of cognitive assessments that were also administered. And we found that um, specific cognitive abilities predicted SLD identification decisions, whereas students growth did not in an RTI district. So, so to me, I mean, that, that suggests a couple things. One, we're using other information that doesn't align with what we're the method we're supposed to be using, but also two, that RTIs, again, I was said this earlier, RTI is really, really hard to do. And so I wonder if part of that issue with the lack of use of growth information is a reflection of the systemic issues with implementation. Um, so that was one of the big findings. Another big finding in that paper was that um, still a lot of use of looking at cognitive score scatter or the, that pattern of strengths and weaknesses in cognitive scores for um, SLD identification. So I think those are two of the big takeaways from that paper. That's good. I, I think a couple of issues come up. One that you we talked about earlier is that the just the very definition of SLD is clouded, right? And and that varies from state to state, practitioner to practitioner, school district mm -hmm. to school district. Um, and then the measurement of that construct is um, clouded by poor psychometrics first, but also in terms of um, understanding what it is we're measuring and why, um, which then probably leads to poor decision-making at times as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I've done several studies on school psychologists decision making related to SLD. And um, I mean, the short takeaway is that it's not great, but I'm going to hedge that with I don't think it's because of anything with school psychologists in particular that's going on. There's just no way to overcome the, the measurement issues that are mm -hmm. inherent to um both the assessments that we're using, but then also when we're comparing scores and comparing them against certain identification criteria, um, you know, good good professional judgment cannot overcome poor psychometrics. And so I just think a lot of those outcomes relate to the psychometric issues with, um, with the data and the um, criteria that we're using. So I think um, Sue, one of our uh, one of our friends who's also been uh, a co-host, a guest host, says, "So what do we do with a lot of folks right at the end?" <laughs> yeah, that's usually the question. Um, so I've done yeah some some talks, and um, my students and former students will know that um, sometimes I feel like I'm getting like I'm too depressing, especially for students <laughs> that are really exciting. And I did this talk at um in a different state in the fall. And I was like, oh, I hope this is not bringing you down too much. And, and I was reassured that they found it reassuring that I was, you know, talking about all the challenges with implementation related to yeah. SLD identification. Um, but, you know, my, my, I guess, you know, a, a few points I would say about what we do. Um, I think there's a balance of uh, balancing your legal, um, the things that you have to do legally, and then your, um, the ethics that you have to adhere to as a professional school psychologist. So legally, you have to do what's 
required in your state and what's happening in your district. So if you live in an RTI only state, you have to use RTI even if you're not an RTI proponent or fan for SLD identification. Um, if you live in an area where PSW is being implemented and you're not a PSW fan, um, you got to do it um, because you legally have to follow the law. Um, but then you also have to balance, again, your ethical codes and principles that you have to adhere to as a school psychologist. And, and I would argue that some of the legal stuff is in conflict with our ethical principles as school psychologists. You know, both NASP and APA say that you have to use assessments and assessment methods that have adequate technical adequacy. And, um, you know, I don't think SLD lends itself well to being able to do that, unfortunately, um, as a broad category. Um, so I think we have to think about doing what's legally required, but then ethically also gathering meaningful information um, to best support the kids. So if you live in a state where you're doing PSW or discrepancy or whatever it might be, you've got to do it. And then I think you can gather additional information that will also be helpful. So I can use a PSW approach um, and look at that, but then I can also gather additional academic assessment data that will help really inform specific targeted interventions to help support that kid. Um, so I think to me, that's the biggest thing to think about. Um, ethically as school psychologists, how do we best meet the needs of this kids? This kid, we have to do what we what is legally required, but we also have to do what will be best for the student. Yeah. How much do you think um, school psychologists should be helping um, parents and teachers understanding what the what about this and what a specific learning disability is, what what um, area of learning disability the child has do you think that that may help if you know if we kind of brought especially maybe parents more um, into the loop up to speed on, on what this is about and, and our decision making process yeah well i think one area that that would be particularly meaningful would be related to dyslexia because um Dyslexia is such a big conversation right now with all the legislation that's passing across the country um, that in talking with teachers and parents that dyslexia is basically a specific reading, a learning disability in reading, right? And so I think when you have parents that come in and say, you know, my kid has a diagnosis of dyslexia, you know, and so I want you to provide these services to them. And then talking with parents and with teachers, frankly, that again, this is, dyslexia basically is the medical term for a disability, a learning disability in reading. And so getting parents and teachers to understand that just because we're calling it a specific learning disability in reading doesn't mean that we're not um, gonna do what's best for this kids in, in terms of their specific difficulties in specific areas of reading. Um, and you know, some states now are allowing um, folks to use dyslexia in um, evaluations and other documents in schools. And so um, I think if folks find that helpful, that's something to think about. But um, I think also just clarifying terminology is really, really important um, because parents aren't, and other teachers aren't well versed in you know the different the different disability categories and what everything means. Um, I think one thing that's helpful in schools is, um, you know, at the beginning of the school year, like, well, one, just doing like a, I'm your school psychologist and this is what I can do, you know? And, but then also thinking through like, 
how you can support the teachers and understanding um, all the different terminology that we use in disability categories and what they each mean is really, really helpful because, um, you know, teachers, you know, can be in the meeting and there's all this uh, language that we're using and, and really we want to work with teachers to see how we think they can best support the kid in the classroom. So um, yeah, I think having those conversations is really, really important. If you guys don't have anything, I'll jump back in. Right. <laughs> Eric, do you have something? <laughs> oh, go ahead. I'll, I'll jump in after. <laughs> I was just on the side also looking at some of your other more, you know, other recent papers as well. Cause again, I, I follow you on research games. I love the notifications and whatnot, but two that um, I was interested in. Um, and I think it kind of probably ties into what you're talking about already, but I was looking at specific learning disability identification, do the identification methods and data matter? And it seems like in that one you assigned school psychologists to different kind of um, different uh, conditions and whatnot. Can yeah. you tell us that one? Yeah, so we asked um, school psychologists to look at data. We assigned them to use um, PSW criteria, RTI criteria, or discrepancy criteria. And then we assigned them to view different types of data. So some looked at just test scores. Some had test scores and observation data, and some had test scores and observation data and background info. So there was kind of this whole mix of different types of data they could view. Um, and we're trying to see if um, one identification method resulted in greater um, identification decision consistency. So I'll say I use the term consistency a lot in the work that I do rather than accurate because um, I think accurate conveys that there's a right answer for what SLD is. And I think most of the research at this point would suggest that we because of all the issues with measurement that we don't really know what a true SLD is. Um, you know, we have our theoretical definition, but we don't really know what it is identification wise because identification is all over the place. Um, so I use the word consistency a lot. Um, and so basically we found that I was kind of surprised that RTI resulted in the greatest identification consistency followed by discrepancy. And then um, PSW was the least consistent decision. And then we found that um, background information and observation data did not impact SLD identification decisions. So I don't know if that's that folks didn't use that information to make their decision or don't find it meaningful to make their decisions or that really we're looking at test scores to see how those um, those impact decisions. So maybe it's that like having the observation data and background info are kind of helpful, but if the test scores don't support those or match the criteria, then then the kid doesn't have an SLD. I'm not totally sure, but. That's interesting. And there's so much that goes into these decisions, including kind of like peer pressure almost, or, you know, you get the administrator or the teacher that's like, oh my gosh, this kid, this kid, this kid. And that can kind of sway us yeah. sometimes that we've got this teacher that is just, oh my goodness. Um, we're, I think, probably more likely to say, sure, let's roll with it than the teacher who's kind of like, eh, <laughs> you know, I don't. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, that speaks to, again, the bigger issues with SLD, the construct and identification that, um, you know, if a kid really needs help and we're going to say, no, they don't meet eligibility criteria, but their academic achievement is still low and we know that they need support, then to say they don't meet eligibility criteria, then we're, what are we doing to support them? Um, I think RTI has hopefully helped with that a little bit than it 
than the way it used to be. Um, but I don't know that we have a really great answer for that. And then, you know, the other thing is, is that just because this kid's scores were discrepant, but they, their achievement is low. So they meet criteria, but this kid's scores aren't discrepant and they still have low achievement. I mean, how, how is that equitable? You know, both kids have needs and we're providing these services for one kid and these protections for one kid and not for the other, um, I think is hugely problematic. And then you said like the teacher wants to do what's best for the kid. And, um, I just don't know that saying yes to one kid and no to the other for either kid. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's just it's hugely problematic in how we provide those services and make those decisions. Yeah. Um, and then I know you had another one too that I was looking at: school psychologist confidence in learning disability identification and decisions. You've just got so much good stuff. Yeah. That, um, <laughs> can you touch on that one too, and then and then I'll yeah. Eric and Rebecca have a turn. <laughs> sure. Um, so this out of my dissertation um so it's been a few years but um the big um school psychologists are pretty confident in the decisions that they make but the the decisions that we make aren't very consistent um so we feel good about if we say yes the kid has a learning disability or no they don't but um we're not really consistent in what the actual decisions are um and so to me i just think that that's important to think about to ensure that we're um reflective on the practices that we're implementing and that we're thinking through, um, you know, is this decision that we're making ultimately what's going to be best to support this student? Um, you know, we all come in with our, our biases, of course. And so like kind of doing a check on ourselves as we're making these decisions. If you work in a school and you know that this kid has been struggling for three years, um, that's probably gonna impact the type of decision that you might make in an eligibility team decision. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, that's part of the decision that you make, right? Um, but I think we just have to think about how all those, those pieces play into the decisions that we make and how we might use um, like different checklists and things like that to ensure that our decision-making follows some sort of um, psychometrically sound process. That's one of the things I, I wanted to ask. Um, I think during your talk at NASP, database decision-making was a, a big um, part of that. And if I can sort of summarize some of my takeaway or one of my takeaways um, was that sometimes at each juncture where a decision needs to be made, we have to sort of weigh what's the best outcome that we can look for based on the information we have. and you had some really good ideas for sort of outlining solid decision-making processes in this SLD um, structure umbrella. Um, and I think some of it was based on functional assessment. So I, I don't know if this would be a good segue into, you know, for you, what's a good functional academic assessment? Yeah, well, I think so. I think it depends on what, um, of course, what the concerns are, but I think we can think through, um, you know, even if you're not, if your school is not, um, doesn't have RTI up and running, that doesn't mean that you can't, if a kid's struggling with reading fluency, that doesn't mean you can't give a CBM probe to assess their um, reading fluency skills. And so, like, so to me, that's a, that's a functional assessment that can be used to gather that information. Um, if, since readings, the, I'll stick with reading, even though I know mm -hmm. there are other areas, but it is the most common SLD. So I guess at least we have that going for us. But um, 
you know, there are specific diagnostic phonics assessments that can be used to determine specific phonics skills with which students struggle. And so I think those are things to think about. Um, in terms of targeting those specific needs. So like I said, um, you know, if you have to give a cognitive assessment and a Wyatt or whatever it is um, to meet the eligibility requirements, but then just, and a lot of these functional assessments you can do, you know, pretty quickly, like a CBM is one minute, you do three, it's three minutes. Um, diagnostic assessment for phonic skills, maybe five minutes. And so they're pretty quick, so they don't add a lot to um, the evaluation that you're conducting, which I think is the good news. Um, and I think can, can provide some really meaningful information for planning intervention going forward. There's also some phonemic awareness assessments out there that are, that are pretty decent um, for planning those as well. Um, comprehension, unfortunately, we don't have as much good information, um, but some of the even just um, more recent computer um, adaptive test screeners, benchmarks can provide some okay information on, on specific areas of comprehension as well. That's good. Awesome. Now you mentioned um, the, the phonics skills, like a diagnostic one. And I've pulled things online before from what I found, different like the core phonics survey and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it gets tripped up though because so at the end I can say okay there seems to be a problem with this blend or this or you know short vowels or long vowels or, or whatnot um, but my district doesn't have like a particular scope and sequence of which to teach these phonic skills so it's kind of haphazard um, is that a problem and then should I so in my reports I'm saying these are the skills that need to be worked on is that kind of what I should be doing or I never know yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I would think about the specific, you know, phonic skills, but then also I think there's some um, evidence to suggest that um, there is a progression in terms of phonic skills from like CVC words being the easiest and then digraphs, um, blends, um, CVCE words. So I think ideally you want to start with that most basic, you know, if they are struggling with CVC words, start there. If they've got CVC words down, struggle with digraphs, start with digraphs. Um, so kind of, yes, yeah, thinking through what that progression is and then what is the most basic skill in that progression with which the student struggles and start intervening in that specific area. Very cool. Sue uh, chimes in too, wanting to know about uh, writing math. <laughs> I know that there's not much yeah. out there. Do you have any leads on where would you start for those concerns? So, um, well, I'm not a writing person, so I'll just make that full disclosure. Um, for math, I think there's a couple, um, and I don't do as much math as reading either, but um, I think there's a couple things to think about for math. Um, I think doing a um, like survey level analysis, analysis with math skills can be helpful. Um, like I said, we just don't know as much about math, but one thing I would think about is, is it does it seem to be a conceptual difficulty or a procedural difficulty? So do they not understand what addition is or can they not follow the procedure for doing a, you know, double digit addition? Um, and then, and some, you know, some of your, um, like key math can give you some information on those broad areas. Um, and then um, if it's like a procedural difficulty, thinking through um, that survey level assessment for the most basic skill that the student struggles with. So if they're in um, fourth grade and they 
you know, they've mastered addition and subtraction, um, and then you're going to move on to multiplication. Okay, well, let's see, do they have their multiplication facts? Yes, um, but they seem to be struggling with double-digit multiplication. Um, and then starting with that most basic skill, I think, is, um, is really helpful. And I think the thing about that, too, is that... Um, that doesn't have to take that long either. Even CBM math probes can be helpful for that. I think um, CBM math uh, general outcome measures can be problematic because they have so many different skills on them across the school year. So like for third grade, it'll have anything from single digit addition and subtraction to multiplication, right? And so that can be challenging for narrowing down. But um, I think something to think about is looking at subskill mastery measures of math skills, so specific skills. So one for just single digit addition, just single digit subtraction, um, and implementing those separately to look at, or uh, giving those separately to look at what is the specific area of difficulty that the kid struggles with. Mm. Um, for writing, I would think about a CBM writing probe. Um, they they're not as well researched as CBM reading, um, but there is some decent support for them. Um, and there is support for um, those really basic writing skills, predicting later writing skills. So even things like handwriting and transcription um, predict idea generation as kids get older. So if you're noticing difficulties with those basic you know, spelling um, when kids are young, then those are definitely areas you want to think about intervening um, because they do predict later overall writing skills. I wonder, are they, is there anything, do you know, so if they predict it, do we know though if we intervene on their, their writing and their handwriting and whatnot, does that result in better outcomes or are they just correlated? Yeah, I don't know, like longitudinally, I think I do know that, you know, when kids are younger, that yes, if we um, intervene when kids are young with those more basic skills, then we do see better writing outcomes as kids progress. Um, I'm not sure uh, in terms of like intervening um, um how that translates into when kids are a lot older, but um, yeah, definitely when kids are younger, it's certainly helpful. I wish that we still taught handwriting, they don't, at least in my district, <laughs> don't really do that. Yeah. Don't really yeah. do that. <laughs> it's an interesting conversation now in terms of, you know, technology and how all that has shifted, but um, yeah, I'm certainly not, I don't want to put myself off as the writing expert. Steve Graham does a lot of really good writing work. And then there's some folks at Nebraska Lincoln that do good work. Um, but it's just not done um, nearly as much as as reading in particular and math. So I think those are certainly areas that we need a lot of work in. Yeah. University of Missouri has some uh, good intervention. Yeah. Work. Yeah, Erica Lemke does some writing stuff yes, there too. Exactly. Um, that based yeah, intervention network is really great, and they have free resources on there too. Yeah. Very cool. Erica presented at NASP in Hartford uh, over the summer. Oh yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's great. on her writing interventions. Yeah, she was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Awesome. We're gonna have to get a writing. We were talking about a math episode coming up. Yeah. Specific one, so we'll 
have to do it and go into writing too. All right, last call for questions. Um, you know, this has been awesome and I know that it's a little bit depressing LD just by nature, but um, it's good we have to know this stuff because I feel like if we go into the IEP table and think, you know, definitely this or definitely that and we kind of fool ourselves into thinking that we have it all figured out, I think that that's dangerous there too. Um, so I think it's good that we use you know, are aware of what the limitations of some of this stuff are. But um, I'm looking for any last comments, Rebecca, Eric, or any last um, things you want to touch on? No, I think that uh, addressing the depressing piece, I think people on Twitter are finding it less depressing than coronavirus. So <laughs> okay, yeah. well, I guess I don't know what that says is that I guess that's good to be less depressing than the coronavirus, but also like if that's all that it's less depressing then it's a little depressing. <laughs> Exactly. I guess what I get, you know, with SLD, you know, it, it is really problematic and it's our largest disability category. And and so to me, that's one reason to really be um, thinking about all of this, because it does affect so many kids that we serve in schools. Um, mm -hmm. and so to me, that's part, part of the underlying importance, I guess. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right, well, thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat with us. I know that I learned a lot and that was good. It was a little bit of a Corona distraction until Rebecca brought it back up and now it's on my back again. <laughs> but I hope that everybody out there stays safe and washes their hands yes. and social distancing and does their part to you know get us through it and we're good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Bye everybody. Good night, everyone.